A reading from the prophet Zechariah, chapter 9, beginning in verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And from John chapter 12, beginning in verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you're gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Verse 27, now... Is my soul troubled? And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, in your kindness and in your mercy, we ask that by the power of your spirit, that you in this moment would do the thing that only you can do. 
Lord, it is the thing we must have you do. Lord, we ask that you would take these words that are in your word. Lord, that you would take the words that I have prepared and would you use them? Would you shine light on them? Lord, would you shine light into our weary hearts and souls? Lord, and use these words to give us great hope tonight in our Lord Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. I want to begin tonight with a sermon illustration that is going to be hard to follow. So I need you to listen carefully. And I promise you, they teach you in seminary not to begin sermons like that. Okay? But I want you to imagine a conversation between two what we might call seasoned saints. Um, I have in my mind those who've been following Jesus much longer than many of us here. And imagine these two seasoned saints, maybe toward the end of their lives, talking and thinking back on their life of following Jesus. And imagine the conversation going something like this. One of them says to the other, have you ever been deeply and profoundly disappointed with Jesus? Something that he did or didn't do, something he was or was not. Have you ever been deeply disappointed in him? And imagine the other saint looking at that one and saying, yeah. And then I imagine this first saint saying, so have I. How did that end for you? And I imagine this second saint saying, how did it end for me? Like in the end, what do I think? And this saint says, Yes. And that saint says, in the end, I wasn't disappointed at all. And I imagine the first one saying, same. It's Palm Sunday, and it's good and right to preach a passage that traces Jesus' steps in the final week of his life. It is good. Because if there's anything that Jesus has done, we want to soak it up. But I think more perhaps pastorally relevant, or as pastorally relevant, or perhaps to just take this to a deeper place of pastoral relevance. I think the scene, especially the way that John tells it here, I think this scene focuses on our expectations of who or what we expect Jesus to be. I think this passage makes us think deeply of the Jesus that we desire. Like left our own devices, what do we, what do we wish Jesus would do? Left to our own devices, what do we wish Jesus would be? And this passage is intended to take a look in those places in our hearts 
and answer back with the Jesus that we actually get, which, by the way, is the Jesus we really deeply need. The, the main thing I want you to hear tonight, if you don't hear anything else I say, here's the main thing I want you to hear, and I really don't want you to miss it tonight. It's this. The salvation that Jesus Christ offers is not what we expect. The salvation that Jesus has come to bring is not the salvation left to our own devices we would have kind of asked for or desired. Instead, 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 it is in the end, much better than that. The salvation that Jesus comes to offer is not the salvation we would expect, but instead it is much better than that. And I think that's what this triumphal entry text from the Gospel of John is about. So I really want to unfold this idea to you in two parts. Kind of section one, I want to just look at this scene and ask the question, what happened here? What are the people doing, reacting? What are they saying? What are they holding? Jesus, what is he doing when he gets on a donkey? The disciples, what are they thinking when they get confused? And Jesus, what is he talking about when he marches in as a triumphant king and immediately starts talking about death and his death? So what's happening here? That's section one. And then section two, the second part, I want to simply just talk about what this means for you and for me. So let's take a look. Section one, what's exactly happening here? And let's start by asking the question, what are the people holding and what are they saying? So would you take a look with me at verse 12. The next day, the large, the next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. John tells us that there's a wild scene when Jesus marches into the city. People have been anticipating his arrival. He's been healing. People who are blind are seeing. People who are deaf are hearing. He's been teaching, and he's been teaching with this kind of authority that no one's ever heard before. And at multiple points along the way, especially one prominent moment after he feeds a crowd of 5,000, they want to take him and make him a king. But he keeps telling everyone, not yet, my hour is still coming. The hour when I'm going to be the king is still coming. And the people have been waiting, and they've been anticipating, and they've heard. They've heard particularly because they knew he raised Lazarus from the dead, we're told. They knew he raised Lazarus from the dead, and he's coming to Jerusalem. This must be the hour that we have been expecting. 
And they know it, and they become, and they gather, and they see him coming, and they make a kind of parade scene for him, particularly waving palm branches. Why? Well, palm branches at this time are something of a a symbol of national political liberation for the Jewish people of the first century. See, generations before, there was a, a leader who had led a revolt against the Gentiles. He'd kind of reestablished the temple. And that movement, the Maccabean movement, their symbol was a palm branch. So when they're holding palm branches, they're saying something to the effect of, here you are, you are this king, this, this liberator, this person who's come to overthrow the Romans for us. We're ready, we're ready, we're ready. And then what are they literally saying? Again in verse 13, they're saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. They're singing a song. The song is the song of Psalm 118. It's a kingly psalm. It's a coronation psalm. And it is a psalm that they would have sung as they made a journey to celebrate the Passover. So you've got Passover imagery, the great moment when God liberated his people from evil Gentile rulers. They were enslaved in Egypt and they were liberated, being mixed with this recent act of liberation. And it's, it's all mixed up. And They're singing these songs. They think Jesus has come to bring some sort of political revolution of some kind. Now, now just a slight side note. Whether you think Christians should be engaged in politics or not, that's actually not in view here, okay? So that's, that's, not, a, that's not what's happening here exactly. So just bracket that off for now. And, and see, the people are right. Jesus is marching in. He is coming as king. But they're exactly wrong about what that was going to look like. And therefore, when he comes in, they are deeply disappointed by what he actually does instead. Here's a second question. Why a donkey? Look at verse 14. And Jesus found a young donkey, and he sat on it, just as it is written. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. You see, in Zechariah 9, and you heard Will read it, we're we're told, it's foretold, that the king, when he arrives in the city to bring about, we can say for now, God's full and final restoration of all things, that he would come riding on a donkey. And Jesus knows this. Jesus knows that he is coming into this city. He knows about Zechariah 9, and he gets on the donkey on purpose to ride in. Imagine a bomb, and Jesus is coming in with a kind of match in order to light it and explode it. It just doesn't look like what they imagined it looking like. And therefore, they are deeply disappointed. See, just like he is the king riding in, a la Zechariah 9, he's also going to become the suffering servant of Isaiah. 
who's going to suffer for his people first. It's deeply disappointing. Is Jesus' way, when he gets on the donkey, of saying yes and, and no, not what you think. Now, if, if you're confused at this point, so were the disciples. Verse 16, his disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and done to him. And what makes the disciples even more confused is what Jesus begins to talk about next. People are holding palm branches. They're saying Hosanna. Jesus is riding on a donkey, and the disciples are confused. And now that turns to death talk. Look at verse 23. Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Great. That's what we're looking for. We're looking for you to ride on a donkey, into the city and be glorified, be lifted up on a throne. Flex your power and might and authority. You're going to be glorified. This is great. You've been saying your hour is coming when you're going to be glorified. It's coming. It's still coming. It's not yet. And finally, it's here. Great. Verse 24, but truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies... It remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. And then Jesus' soul becomes troubled, and he starts talking about the fact that he is about to be lifted up. But see, the lifting up would not be taking a throne. The lifting up would be would be being lifted up on a cross. And in this moment, he's saying, that's what's about to happen, but more unnervingly for you and for me, he's saying, and I want you to come with me and follow me there. Join me. Come on. And you know, the disciples are just completely confused because remember, early in the story, they're arguing over which one of them will be the greatest when he comes in his kingdom. Remember, they're the ones saying, hey, when you come into your kingdom and you sit on your throne, could, could I be at your right hand? Could I be at your left hand? Could I have a particular position of power? In other words, the disciples are about to be so deeply and tremendously disappointed. See, it's like in this scenario. In fact, when they're singing Hosanna, Hosanna has a force to it. Save us, save us. It has the force of it of save us and save us now. It's like the people, and hear me here, it's like the people, it's like the disciples, it's like the crowds, it's like they desire from Jesus immediate solutions 
to their immediate problems. And this is as good a time as ever to tell you that our Lord almost never works that way. It's not that he never works that way, but he almost never works that way. And we can be so frustrated with our Lord because he isn't offering immediate solutions to immediate problems. And this scene is very clear that he never promised to do that. It's like in this scene that the crowds, the people, and the disciples, it's like they expect Jesus to march in and dispense some version of the good life for them. There's this good life where we don't have to worry about the Romans, and we can be, our situation can be different, and we can be comfortable. And it's like they expect Jesus to come in and just start dispensing the good life for them. And he does not seem interested in doing that at all. If there is a cry of our culture, and, and, and when I say this, first of all, just know I see it in me as easily as I see it in you. And when I say this, I'm, I'm not saying you think this on purpose, but it's the air that we breathe. We breathe this air, and this is another talk for another day, but in the air we breathe, we breathe in this sort of deep self-centeredness and self-absorption, and we, we think that everything in our life, relationships, job, Jesus, is there to kind of enhance our life. That's what we're saying. If you could, if you could, you know, if you could put a microphone up to what we're thinking, we're saying, enhance my life, enhance my life, enhance my life, enhance my life. The people are saying, enhance our life. But this is the question I've been turning over in my heart for the last like three weeks. If a humble king coming in on a borrowed donkey who's about to be washing disciples' feet on his way to the cross is our Lord Jesus, what do we expect? our lives to look like when he is asking us to follow him down that kind of road. Let's just say it's not the kind of life enhancement we wish for. In other words, if we're honest, when you and I come to Christ... When we come seeking him and things from him, and we see the things he gives instead, we can often be deeply, deeply disappointed. All of that is section one. But then, of course, there is a section two. In the section two which happens to be tonight all of our hope. The section two makes us ask the question, if Jesus doesn't march into our life to give us exactly all the things we wish that he would, what does he 
give instead. Because I am telling you, and I believe this more deeply today than maybe I ever have before in my whole life. I believe, and I really, really believe this. I believe the promises. I believe the things that he offers instead are so rich and deep and awe-satisfying. And the promises that he offers instead, I'm gonna, I'm gonna lay out five of them. There's, there's an infinite amount. The Apostle Paul says one time that I have the privilege of preaching the unsearchable riches of Christ. So in other words, there's an infinite amount of things that he gives instead. And I'm going to give you five. I'm going to start saying them quick um, on accident. And, and I'll kind of overlap them so they won't be that clear to know how to follow them. But with some pastoral passion, I'm going to lay out to you what I think is a clear promise of the good news of the gospel. So what does he offer instead? First of all, he offers us the opportunity to be free from the things we worship that are lesser than him. He offers a chance to kind of get rid of the idolatrous things that we pour our hearts and souls out to that, that disappoint us so deeply. And he beckons us instead to deep satisfaction and joy. So, for example, you and I, we, we pour our lives, we pour our lives into something like our career. The only problem with that is no career achievement or amount of money can ever be enough. And, and an ironic, weird thing that begins to happen. As you become disappointed with something like career, you end up hating your job. But see, it was never meant to bear the pressure of ultimate. And what Christ offers you instead is a, is a well of endless satisfaction and joy. Let's say when we worship things like fitness or, or, or sexual pleasure or something like that. You're always going to feel ugly. And not enough. When you worship other people's approval, like, like you need them to affirm you, to fill up that empty thing inside of you, they'll never be able to affirm you enough. And, and what I'm here to tell you, you'll actively resent them for it. I mean, I guess what I'm trying to say is can you imagine enjoying something like career, like bodily pleasures, like relationships, can you imagine enjoying them and not resenting them? Can you imagine enjoying them as gifts from God instead of ultimate things? See, Jesus Christ gives us in his person all satisfying joy. Here's the second thing he offers instead. What about those ways that sin has you entangled? The metaphor in the scriptures is rich. It's like sin, darkness, and death. It's like its fingers are just around you, like choking you out. 
See, what Christ offers instead is the ability to be free. Can you tonight imagine being so free? See, when Jesus marches into the cross, he wins for you in his body that kind of freedom, and it can be yours. What about just the deep sense of shame that you carry, that you're just not enough, can't be enough, the things that you've done, left undone, the things that have been done to you, have you hiding in the trees? See, the Bible teaches that when Jesus goes to the cross, he bears our shame in his body. Can you imagine what it would feel like to come out of hiding in the trees and into the bright light of holiness? See, that's the kind of thing that he offers instead. Instead of just something like your life going better. What about the way that you and I are so curved in on ourselves? We're so curved in on ourselves. Be honest. You, you mostly think of other people in your life as being in your way. Maybe that's just me. Can you imagine coming out of this posture and into this posture of fellowship with brothers and sisters in Christ? Do you even have capacity to imagine how free it would feel if you found something like self-forgetfulness? And see, when Jesus goes to the cross as a humble king, he gives us, he gives us a model of what that would look like, but he also empowers us to be that, to do that. See, that's what he offers instead. What about the fact that he might not do all the things we wished he would do, but what about the fact that he offers to us an anchor, and a sure and steady anchor, the book of Hebrews tells us, in every single storm. Now, there's been multiple times in my life, a prominent time happened almost 10 years ago, where we were in a deep and dark personal storm. And there were moments in that place where we knew the presence of Christ in ways that we had never known it before. And if I could go back and look at that version of myself, I would say to that person, Joel, that is the promise. And what about the fact this Jesus who comes into the city disappointing what everybody wished he would be and do what about the fact that this, this Lord Jesus offers you every day of your life union with him, where you can know him, where his spirit dwells inside of you, where he promises to be at work, to comfort you, to guide you, to develop in you the fruits of his spirit. In other words, to make you more and more alive and free 
all the time, from now to the point where you actually see this Jesus' face. See, the Bible teaches that there's a day coming when you and I will have resurrected bodies in the new heavens and new earth. And the face, the face that we've looked for in all the very best and very worst times of our life will actually see him. We won't see him dimly like we do now, but we will see him, as we're told, as he actually is. And see, that, that future hope, and I'm going to try to tell you this a thousand different ways, not in this moment, but over our years together, is that that hope that one day you will see the satisfaction of all of your deepest longings. What if I told you that hope has its way of working its way backwards so you can take hold of it right here, right now? And the Bible teaches us that, the, that, that those who hope in that Lord will not be disappointed. And won't be put to shame. In other words, what if you were offered being more alive than you ever thought possible because this king who rides on the donkey brings resurrection, yes, through crucifixion, but he brings you something that this same writer, John, calls abundant life. I'm asking a lot of what-if hypotheticals, but I promise you it's all true, and I promise you it's all for you. Have you ever been disappointed by Jesus? Yes. How did that end for you? Not disappointed at all. Me either. I think that's a talk we'll have one day. Let's pray.